I invite you to turn back to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Tonight we'll look at verses 18 through 22. Once you've located that, I will invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, Otherwise, the wines will burst the skins. The wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Please be seated. As chapter 2 of Mark begins, we begin to see Jesus having controversy. His ministry is still fairly new. He only has five disciples. He called forth the Sea of Galilee and then came back later and called Matthew, as we saw this morning. So Jesus is, still doesn't even have all of his disciples yet. He's just begun his public ministry. People have been in awe of his authority as he teaches and casts out demons and does miracles. But controversy begins to creep into his ministry. As he proclaims to have the authority to forgive sins. And as he is having dinner with tax collectors and sinners, he's associating with people that good, godly, religious folk don't associate with. And the religious crowd is beginning to have some issues with Jesus. And tonight we see the third controversy arise in Jesus' ministry as Mark records it. And it's over the issue of fasting. The message tonight is going to be quick and it's going to be pretty straightforward. Here's what it looks like. We're going to talk about the question and the answer. There is a question posed to Jesus and He gives the answer. It's really a twofold question. And in the same way, Jesus gives a twofold answer. So let's look first at the question. Verse 18 John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In the previous verses we looked at this morning, we remember Jesus wasn't fasting, He was feasting. He's having dinner with Pharisees and tax collectors. People say, look, He's living it up. And that was a problem for a lot of the religious folks. 
And one of the things it called to mind is, why don't these people ever fast? I mean, they, they celebrate, they have, you know, having dinner and all this, but, but why is they not fasting like good religious folks are supposed to do? Well, let, let's talk a little bit about fasting just to make sure we understand. Fasting basically is to go without eating for a certain period of time usually to devote yourself to some spiritual purpose. Okay, so it's simply to go without food, to give yourself to some spiritual purpose, normally prayer. So fasting and prayer kind of go hand in hand. But here's the thing you need to, you need to understand. Fasting, especially in the Old Testament, is normally associated with sadness. Grief or mourning. It, it, it's, you didn't fast when things were happy. You fasted when things were tough. When there was a need for God's inter intervention. When there was a need for God's help. You fasted to make petitions to God for aid. And in the Old Testament, fasting was only commanded on one occasion. And that occasion is the Day of Atonement. That's the only fast that the Bible commands of God's people. On the Day of Atonement, God's people were to fast. And this fasting was a call to mourning for sin. Okay, This is the day that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you may have heard. That's the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people for the year. And on that day, the people were to fast. And to demonstrate mourning for their sin. Now, let me give you a couple examples of fasting in the Old Testament to help you get a picture of what it looks like, of kind of what it means. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah asks a brother who has returned from Jerusalem, how is the city? How are the people of God? He says, terrible. The people are living in shame and disgrace. The walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire. It's terrible. And this is what it says in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart is grieved and mourning over the condition of the city, over the condition of the people, and he begins to fast and pray out of desperation as he's going to seek for God's help. Let me give you another example from the book of Esther. You will remember the story of Queen Esther. Esther is the Jewish girl, the niece of one Mordecai, who has become queen as there's basically a beauty pageant and uh, the king calls in the different young virgins to spend the night with him and he finds the one he likes the best and he picks Esther. So Esther becomes the new queen. Well, a plot is hatched by Haman, one of the king's officials, to eradicate all of the Jews in the kingdom on a certain day. All of the Jews are going to be killed by their enemies. Well, Mordecai is grieved, of course, because he's a Jew, Esther's a Jew, and Mordecai sends word to Esther Esther, you have to go to the king and intercede on behalf of your people. Here's the problem. You can't just show up to get an audience with the king. Even the queen 
if she goes to the king and she shows up in his court without being invited, unless he lowers his scepter to receive her, she will be killed instantly. So she's afraid. And this is what it says in Esther chapter 4, verse 16. This is what Esther replies to Mordecai who has told her to go see the king. She says, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Desperate situation. Need the intervention of God. Great reason for grief. Seeking God's help so they call a fast. So those are just some examples to give you an idea of what fasting in the Old Testament looked like. Normally associated with hardship, sadness, grief, a need for God's intervention. They would give themselves to fasting. Now, by the time of the New Testament, it had become a mark of religious devotion. Like so many other acts. The Pharisees, for example, the, the religious leaders of the day, we might call the, they, were, they would have been considered by Jewish society the most righteous among people. They fasted twice a week, every Monday, every Thursday. It wasn't commanded. As I said, fasting is only commanded once a year on the Day of Atonement. But see, by the time of the New Testament, these religious folks had, had kind of, made fasting a mark of religious commitment. Um, in other words, this is just what good religious people did. They fasted. It was supposed to be a sign of atonement and sin, a, a sign of your own humiliation before God, your penitence, your repentant spirit. And it's supposed to be a general aid in your prayer life. But see, like so many religious practices for the Pharisees, it had become a way for the religious crowd to flaunt their religiosity, their piety. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 6:16. 6, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. In other words, this is just something else they had begun to do to flaunt their religious practice to make themselves look righteous and holy. They want everybody to know we fast twice a week. It had lost a lot of its real meaning. It just become another hollow religious practice for many people. When, when originally, fasting is normally associated with mourning and seeking God in prayer. Now, the question is, why don't you and your disciples fast? That's what good religious people do. Like I said, by the time of the New Testament, it, this was just one of the things religious folks did. You fasted. Even if you didn't fast twice a week, you fasted from time to time. But they didn't see Jesus in his disciples fast. That's the question. But that's just... That's just the... The smaller question. There's really a bigger question they're asking. Let's think back what we've seen. Who is this who 
says he can forgive sin. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't you and your disciples fast? Now, all of these questions are really a different form of the same question. Why aren't you playing by the rules? Why aren't you doing things the way you're supposed to? Why don't your religious practices conform to the same as everybody else? Why are you breaking the rules? Why is your religion not in line with what's expected? Why don't you conform to the religious practices of the day? That's really the question. Why is Jesus doing everything different? Why doesn't he come in and fit in with their religious practices? That's really the question. And so let's look for a minute at the answer. Jesus gives an analogy beginning in verse 19. While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus gives an analogy that everyone would have understood instantly. A wedding was basically a seven-day celebration. If it's a virgin bride, her first marriage, it would be a seven-day wedding feast. It was a time for feasting, celebrating, not fasting. It was not a time for mourning and grief. It was a time to celebrate and have joy. As a matter of fact, during the seven days of the feast, wedding guests were not allowed to fast. Even the most religious of people like the Pharisees, if they were guests of a wedding during that seven-day period, they were not allowed to fast. Even though it was their custom to fast twice a week. But remember we said fasting was normally associated with sadness and mourning. A wedding was a time for celebration, not mourning. And Jesus said, as long as the bridegroom is here, his attendants, those who are with him, his friends, his guests, they cannot fast. The feast is still going on. It's a time for joy. It's not a time for mourning. Because the bridegroom is present. Now we need to understand the, the point Jesus is trying to make. In the Old Testament, God often refers to Himself as the groom and His people as the bride. You may remember the book of Hosea when God tells the prophet to marry a woman who will later become an adulteress, Jesus said, he did, uh, God, God said, I'm doing this so that the people will see how they've been unfaithful to me, their husband. Right? So God associates His relationship with His people like a covenant relationship. A marriage is a covenant relationship. You make vows before God and man agreeing this is how our relationship is going to function. That's a covenant contract. Well, God had a covenant with His people. 
And he often pictures himself as their husband and the people as his bride. And a, an image you and I will be familiar with as Christians, as New Testament Christians, is Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride of Christ. We're familiar with that image. What Jesus is trying to say to these people, God has come among His people to initiate this covenant relationship. In other words, it's time for a feast, not a fast. The bridegroom is here. He's trying to point them to who He is. Are you following me? He's trying to say, in me, God, the groom, is coming to His bride on earth. Remember when Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God is at hand? He's inaugurating the kingdom of God. That's what He's pointing to. It's like a new beginning. Isn't that what a wedding is? It's a new beginning. Jesus says this is a new beginning. The Messiah is finally here. God has come among His people to initiate, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He's come to establish this new covenant with His people in place of the old covenant. This is a time for joy. Because I'm here. That's what He's saying. As long as I'm with them, it is not appropriate for them to be mournful and fast. It's a time to celebrate. Are you understanding what Jesus is trying to say? The coming of Jesus was a cause for celebration. I want you to listen to what one Bible commentator had to say about Jesus' reply. Listen to what he said. Jesus is inviting his listeners to notice that as he compares himself to the bridegroom who is the source of joy, he connects the excitement among the people with his proclamation of the kingdom of God, which is a present reality connected with himself and his ministry. It marks a new beginning, a new relationship between God and his people, just like a wedding does. This suggests Jesus' role as the Messiah, and it connects Jesus with the Old Testament portrayal of God as Israel's bridegroom and with the marriage imagery used for Yahweh's relationship with His redeemed people. So Jesus says they're not fasting because this is a time for joy. So it's not a time for mourning and grief. It's a time to celebrate because I am here. But now notice what He says in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. Taken away. Notice that it's a single word in Greek. And it pictures a violent removal. Taken away. Snatched away. He's pointing to the cross. The bridegroom is going to be violently taken away from his people. And he said, they will fast in that day, in those days. In other words, he's saying a time will come when fasting will once again be appropriate, but not now. And indeed, we see when we get to the book of Acts, 
we see that fasting was once again practiced by God's people after Jesus returned to heaven. But there is a change. Fasting is not so much now attached to mourning and sadness as it is to use to seek God for special blessing. Let me give you a couple of examples. When the believers are selecting leaders for the church, they fast to know the will of God, who it is God would want to be the elders of the church, the leaders of the church. When they're preparing to send Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey, they're fasting, seeking the blessing of God on the work that He's called them to. So these are ways fasting is used in the New Testament. Seeking the wisdom of God for special needs seeking the blessing of God on special works. The joy that Jesus brings as the bridegroom still is still present with us as His people. So we don't just fast now in times of grief and sadness, but when we seek the blessing and power and presence of God, it's very appropriate for God's people to once again fast. But there's been a shift. Now, that's the, that's the answer to the first question. Why don't you and your disciples fast? Well, because I'm here. I'm the Messiah. I'm God. I'm, I'm God come to be with His people. This is a time to inaugurate the new covenant. The new kingdom is ushered in. This is a time to celebrate. But remember I said the bigger question is, why don't you conform to the rules? Why don't you practice religion the way everybody else does? Why don't, you, why don't you play by the rules? Here's the answer. Verses 21 and 22. He gives two analogies to answer the question. The first analogy is about a patch of cloth. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. Here's the picture. If you have an old garment, we all know that most materials shrink some when you wash them and wear them over a period of time. Well, at some point, they're going to shrink down to a point and they're not going to shrink anymore, like your old favorite pair of jeans. I mean, they're gonna, they've shrunk all they're going to shrink, and every time you put them on, they're going to fit the same. They're not going to get any smaller. Well, if you get a tear in those jeans and you want to put a patch on it, which we used to do, they don't do that now. Now they tear their jeans on purpose and leave the holes in them. But, but if you take a patch and that patch is made from new cloth and you put that patch on an old pair of jeans, when you wash those jeans, that new patch is going to shrink. But the old blue jeans are not going to shrink with it. The patch is going to get smaller and the stitches are going to tear. And it's going to ruin the patch and the jeans. Does that make sense? He gives another analogy. You don't put new wine into old wineskin. Okay. Grapes were put in a vat to ferment. 
after a certain period of time, they would be transferred into pouches made from like goat skin, animal skins, leather. Okay? Well, if you don't know, when, when wine is fermenting, it's thick, kind of like a paste, and it expands. The gases and all the, it just expands. If it's a new leather pouch, that's not a problem because new leather will do what? Stretch. But if you put new wine that has not completely fermented and expanded, if you put it in old wineskins that have already been stretched, if you fill it with new wine, what happens when that wine expands as it ferments? Well, it's going to bust the skin because it's, it's going to be brittle because it's not going to stretch anymore. And you're going to ruin the wineskin and the wine. And that's what Jesus said. Both analogies make the exact same point. What is the point? The point is this. The new and the old don't go together. They will not work together. Jesus had come to establish the new covenant. Back in the Old Testament, God had promised in passages like Joel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel 36 that He was going to make a new covenant with His people. That He was going to give them a new heart, cleanse them of their sin, fill them with His Spirit. His Son was going to come and redeem them by His own blood. He was going to make a new contract with His people. His, his relationship with His people was going to change. And Jesus said, I've come to establish the new way, the new covenant. And what He's telling them is, the new covenant cannot operate within the forms and structures of the Old Covenant. In other words, you want me to do religion according to the old way. But I've come to establish the new way. I've come to establish the new covenant. And the new covenant doesn't function like the old covenant. You can't squeeze the New Covenant religion into the forms and practices of the Old Covenant. Let me help you understand what I mean. The Old Covenant involved a physical temple. Worship, going to a physical temple. It involved animal sacrifices. It involved dietary laws and rules about cleanliness. All these things were part of the old system of religion. But these things were designed as a shadow of the coming reality. Those things were never meant to be permanent. They were shadows. They were pictures of what would be the permanent way of worship. The permanent way of relating to God. They were only precursors. Types. Symbols. Of what would become the reality. The permanent way to associate with God, in relationship with God. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to establish the permanent way of doing religion. And the old way of doing religion is now past. 
You can't fit the new way of doing religion into the old system. Are you understand what I'm saying? The way it works has changed. The rules of the game have changed. Now, the shadows have passed and what's real is here. Let me read it to you the way it says it in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. All those things are related to the Old Testament practice of religion. He said, don't let anybody judge you in regard to those things. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, those old ways, those old practices of religion were a shadow of what would be the reality when Christ comes. What Christ is saying to these people is, the reality is now here. The new way of doing religion is now here. The permanent way of doing religion is now here. And that doesn't work within the forms and structures of the old. Why didn't he do religion the way they did religion? Because their way was past. Let me say it to you like this. Jesus did not come to revive their religion. He did not come to renew their religion. He did not come to restructure their religion. He did not come to reform their religion. He came to replace their religion. You see? He came to replace their religion. And He says, you can't fit the Christian religion within the forms and structures of any other way of life. The Galatian church. This was their problem. They tried to put the new wine in old wineskins. There were people telling them, yeah, you need to baptize, but you still have to circumcise. Yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you still have to obey the law of Moses. They're trying to put a new patch on old cloth, and guess what? It didn't work. They're trying to be saved by grace and the law, and it doesn't work. And Paul wrote to them and saying, you foolish Galatians. He basically wrote to them to tell them, this doesn't work. He wrote to tell them, the new way has replaced the old. You let go of the old. The problem is not that the old was flawed in some way. No, it did what it was supposed to. It was never meant to be permanent. It was meant to be replaced. Let me say it to you in a way that might strike a chord with us a little bit. Christianity is not an add-on religion. You can't just tack Jesus on to your way of doing things. That's what a lot of people want to do. They want to keep their way of life. They want to keep their way of doing things. They still worldly, but they want to tack Jesus onto it. They want to add Him to it. A little Jesus, not too much to really shake things up, but just a little enough Jesus to get me to heaven. 
Listen, let me say it like this. Jesus didn't come to reform your way of life. He came to replace it. You with me? He didn't come just to reform the way you live. He came to alter absolutely, totally, completely. He came to give you a completely different way to live. You, you can't just tack Jesus onto the way you want to do things. And sometimes, even today in churches, what they want to do, they want to have an organization that really looks and functions like the world. But they want to tack Jesus onto it to make it legitimate. Their worship services are, look more like a rock concert. Colored lights and fog machines and all kind of antics. and It really has very little to do with worship. What are they trying to do? Well, they're taking the world and trying to tack Jesus onto it in hopes of attracting people that don't care anything about God. Here's the problem. Christianity is not an add-on religion. It's a replace-everything religion. Why doesn't Jesus practice religion the way the folks of His day practice religion? Why doesn't He conform to the rules? Why doesn't He do things the way everybody else? Why wasn't He being a good religious man? Because He came to replace their religion. Listen, when Jesus called you to follow Him, like we talked about this morning, I, I wonder if you understand that He called you to follow Him, and that means your old life is replaced with His way of life? You can't follow Jesus and follow your heart at the same time. The Bible says your heart is desperately wicked. Follow your heart is the absolute worst advice you could ever give anybody. Dear Heavenly Father, to tell somebody to follow their heart. Just, just follow your heart. No, that'll take you to hell. Follow Jesus. Today I want you to see, Jesus has called you to follow Him and He wants to replace your way of life with His way of life. Why? Because that's where ultimate joy is found. We talked about joy last week. The ultimate joy in life is found in drawing near to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The more like Jesus you become, the greater your capacity to enjoy God. The greater the pleasure you find in God, the more you look like His Son. The more you replace your old way of life with His way of life, the more gladness you have in the things of God. You understand? He came to replace your old way because the old way was broken. You were never going to experience God in the old way of life. The Jews were never going to truly experience God under the old religion. Why? Because they were broken. The law wasn't broken. They were broken. So He came to replace religion with the real thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You.
that You sent Your Son to replace religion with the real thing. 